Dr. Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, once described the late Yale scholar of missions and world Christianity, Laman Sane, as, quote, probably the most significant theologian of mission in the contemporary English-speaking world, unquote. By my count, Professor Sane wrote 19 books and hundreds of scholarly articles, often on the global and theological relationship between Islam and Christianity, or on the growing resurgence of world Christianity and its implications especially for indigenous cultures in the global south. Tragically and unexpectedly, Professor Sane died of a stroke in 2019 at age 76, less than a year after an institute bearing his name was created, the Sane Institute at the University of Ghana. That institute has from its inception been led by Dr. John Azuma, who knew Professor Sane both as a friend and a fellow scholar. Like Professor Sane's own teenage conversion from Islam to Christianity, Dr. Azuma converted to Christianity at age 17 after growing up as a Muslim in northern Ghana. His Muslim uncle paid for his seminary training, he tells us, and years later, Dr. Azuma paid for his own Muslim sister to make pilgrimage to Mecca. Blood is thicker than water, as the old phrase goes. And yet, both Dr. Azuma, who returned from the West to Ghana, and Professor Sane, who eventually made his home in New England as a kind of permanent ambassador from Gambia, were each drawn to the ideas, rigor, and joy of Christianity. Dr. Azuma read Professor Sane extensively while pursuing a master's and PhD at the University of Birmingham in the UK. He sought then, and still seeks, to make sense of pluralism, to make peace with real religious difference, but also to wrestle with those differences, to listen and understand to the animating beliefs of 1.9 billion Muslims in the world today, not just 2.4 billion Christians in his own tribe. How to pay attention to the anthropological, political, and economic aspects of a phenomenon or group without overlooking the theological religious motivation that many self-assign to decision-making? You've got to listen to what the people who are leading and the founders and the preachers and the scholars are saying about who they are. They are self-defining their cause and yet Western scholars and journalists have the tendency to come at this from the anthropological, sociological, economic perspectives, which are all valid. But it's not just about that. Today, we're very honored to host both Dr. Azuma and Dr. Sane's sole surviving son, Kalifa Sane, a journalist who since 2008 has covered music and the arts as a staff writer at The New Yorker and for eight years before that, as a music critic at the New York Times. While an undergrad, Khalifa edited a Harvard Journal of Race and Culture, Transition Magazine, at the W.E.B. Du Bois Institute. In 2021, he published a provocative book, Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres, linked in the show notes. This is a front row seat to a beautiful conversation about an incredibly bright light who went out in 2019. And yet, through the leadership and work of the Sane Institute in Ghana, through his Yale professor wife, Sandra, and through his incredibly talented son, you'll hear in a moment, today lives on. Enjoy the conversation.
Dr. Zuma, it's good to see you. Uh, even if it's over Zencaster, it seems like a long time ago, right before the pandemic, that I was out in Ghana for the launch event of the Sane Institute. As you know, I had this really strange experience of after my dad died, it's been three years ago now, and obviously the sadness and the strangeness and the shock was combined with this outpouring from people from around the world talking about how much his example had meant to them, which I knew that he was a scholar who was influential. I knew that his work meant a lot to people, but I'd never really heard it the way I heard it in those months and even years after he died. And obviously one of the things that came out of that was the launch of the Sene Institute, which was something that he had been so excited about and so surprised by when he heard that there was going to be an institute named after him. Because for him, I think he didn't necessarily always fully appreciate how influential and inspirational his work was to people. And I think part of the reason for that was obviously his scholarship, right? That he had worked all his life on these issues of global Christianity, world Christianity, of Christianity and Islam in Africa, and more broadly than that. But I think it was also his biography. He's this guy who's born in a little village, in a little town, in a little country in Africa, right? Janjambere, upriver in the Gambia, and kind of makes his way as a boy to the big city, the capital, Banjul. It might have been called Bathurst back then. And he does something kind of unusual. I didn't realize how unusual it was till I got older, but he converts to Christianity. And, you know, this is a Muslim country. He comes from a Muslim family. And it's not like someone grabs him and preaches him. It's not like he meets some amazing evangelist who tells him this is the way. As far as I could tell, he does it kind of by reading, right? He, he's reading these books and he's reading some C.S. Lewis and he's reading things he can find from little churches and from missionary libraries and basically has a hard time finding a church that will even accept him, right? He's going kind of door to door, different churches in the Gambia, trying to find someone saying, I'm a, I was born a Muslim boy, I want to convert to Christianity. And he was surprised to find that a lot of these places were a little bit reluctant to be seen to be converting a local Muslim boy, right? That that would be offensive to the local populations. And of course, eventually he does find a place and he does convert and has this amazing life and career, first in Europe and then in America, and I can't help but wonder about the parallels to your own life and your own boyhood and your own conversion. So, John, tell me, was it a similar experience that you had growing up Muslim and converting as a teenager to Christianity? <sighs> well, thank you. Thank you, Kay. Thank you, Josh, for this opportunity. Yes, I want to believe that there are no two situations that are exactly similar, but there are definitely some connections and some intersections and there are some similarities. Lamin had been a big inspirer and mentor to me when I started off on my study on Christian theology. I started reading his works in seminary. I was just fascinated by his scholarship and I got to know a little bit of his own personal story coming from a Muslim background. And it even fascinated me the more because 
then I was seeing a lot of my own story in Lamin's story. And so, yes, I grew up in a small village in northern Ghana and uh, grew up in a Muslim family, Muslim context. And I also became Christian in high school. And it was very similar to Lamin's story. It's not because any missionary came to talk to me to become a Christian, anything of that sort. It was definitely not a white missionary, but it happened in school just from peer influence and peer inspiration and joint wanted to be with my peers. And it was a public school and religious worship was allowed. Christians had their place of worship. Muslims had a place of worship. I was going to the Muslim place of worship, but gravitated somewhat towards the Christian chapel for worship from time to time. And I ended up falling in love with it, with just the worship setting of Christianity, allowing Muslim men and women in there, young girls and young boys in there, in the same space, spoke to me very profoundly because I was raised with my sisters. And so those were some of the little things that really attracted me to the Christian faith. So it was, it was partly a kind of egalitarianism, right? A, a sense that things were a little bit less separate and segregated. Exactly. And as I said, one of the things that I struggled with growing up was having to go to place of worship and then you'll be taken away from your sisters or from your mom. You have to go to a different part of the building for your prayers. And that was very hard for me to have this space where you had young men and young women sitting together, studying together, praying together, singing together. It was just that shared common space of egalitarianism that appealed to me. Yes. Hmm. I think for my father, it was also a sense that the way he encountered the Christian faith, it was really, it came along with all this scholarship. It came along with the idea of an intellectual life, the idea of asking questions and having doubts and wrestling with things. And obviously, his life became about the intersection of those two things, right? It became about the idea of learning about this faith and grappling with this faith and asking questions, sometimes impertinent questions. And I think he liked the idea that there was this tradition where that was allowed and encouraged at the same time as the flip side of that is that he also spent a lot of time trying to explain to his readers and to his students, some of whom were Christians, that actually there was that tradition in Islam too, that there was a tradition of Muslim scholarship. You know, his dissertation about the Jahanka community in Gambia was very much about saying, hey, wait a second, okay, we know about some of these Christian theological traditions, let's pay attention to some of these traditions in the Muslim world that maybe people didn't know, and certainly people in the Christian world didn't know. Yes, that is so true. And that is where your dad and my, my own story diverge a little bit. His was very much an intellectual quest. For mine, it was more of a relationship, a quest for relationships and for connections. And the two kind of go hand in hand, and the two are deeply rooted both in Islam and Christianity. Christianity is about relationships. It's about building communities. And so is Islam. It's about community. It's about family. It's about relationships. It's about the ummah. And so I found the intellectual quest came to me much later 
as I grew in my faith, I became Christian and I started studying Christianity. I realized how much of a chasm there was between Christians and Muslims, the stereotypical views of each other, the ignorance on both sides of the other. And I felt that was contributing to a gulf of division and of misunderstanding and even tension and conflict in some areas. So I saw myself as belonging to two families, the spiritual family, which is now Christianity, and my biological and cultural family, which is Islam. And I felt that sense of burden to build bridges between these two families of mine, my spiritual and my cultural family. And that is what spurred me on in my own intellectual quest and my own deeper search and study of Islam. And as I said, your dad was there very much in the background as my inspirer because I really followed him. And that was what really spurred me on in my academic own pursuits. John, I'm talking to you. You're in Accra now. And it, it strikes me that one of the differences is that my father, he, he gets a, a scholarship to attend university in America. And he leaves Gambia as a, I think, as, as a teenager and goes, you know, first to Hampton and then to Union College in Schenectady. And in a sense, he never really goes home again. He never really lives full time in the Gambia again. He's traveling the world and he's, he's living in Beirut. He meets my mother in London. You know, they live different places in Africa and then they, they settle in the U.S. in 1981 and he makes his life there. And so, you know, there's a sense in which that split, that moment when he turns from Islam to Christianity, you know, it also echoes a certain personal break where he's not living with his many brothers that he loves and, and sisters in the Gambia. He's gone off to make a life for himself. And it's in many ways, not just religious, right? All his siblings uh, remain Muslim, but in many ways, it's a different life than the life that the rest of his family members have. So I've got to ask you, what was it like to undertake this conversion in the context of a Muslim family and a Muslim culture. And, you know, you talk about the importance of relationships. How did that change the kinds of relationships that you had with your family and with your friends within Ghana? Yeah. Well, thank you. Again, very much similar to what your father would have gone through. The initial stages of these kinds of faith journeys are always difficult and even in some cases traumatic to the families. And the family definitely reacts in shock and in a sense of loss and the pain and disappointment and failure. What have we done wrong? What were we supposed to do? <laughs> and even a sense of guilt and in some cases, sense of anger also. But that is just the initial reaction. Then after a year or two, things calm down and definitely going to the third year, relationships were fully back engaged. And my Muslim uncle, who was a very con practicing, committed Muslim, he was the one, when I eventually said I was going to study Christian theology, my Muslim uncle paid for my, my theological education. He funded me. My going and my coming mm. from seminary mm. was all paid by my Muslim uncle. The relationships have gotten back together in even growing stronger and deeper. In my case, for instance, I have sisters, as I said, and one of them was going on pilgrimage. They are 
a number of them are still Muslim. They are married into Muslim families. And so he was going on pilgrimage and he reached, she reached out to me and I had to pay for her airfare. I had to buy her a ticket to go to Mecca for her pilgrimage. So this is family. It's the family, their relationships. Blood is actually thicker than water of ablution or water of baptism in Africa. Dr. Azuma, you have said about Boko Haram and about other atrocities that have taken place and been greatly noticed by Western journalists that it's common for us in the West to miss the religious roots of things and to understand them rightly. And you've just described, you know, relatives who are Muslim, which I venture to guess most of our listeners don't share. The tendency is to have assumptions that are not grounded in relationship, that are often not grounded in fact. What do you think is the largest misconception that we have in the West, that we have in the United States, whether as journalists or as academics, about Islam in the world and Islam in in Africa? Yeah, I think Western societies have reached a particular stage where quite a number of scholars have described Western society as post-Christian and therefore even post-religious. And so for the West, when 9-11 happened, people were just in shock and deeply disorientated because where was this coming from? There were books written in the West that declared the death of God and religion was dead and buried. And so there was a level of religious illiteracy in the West at the time of 9-11, even 9-11, and therefore people did not see it coming. But when you're talking to the religious motivations and convictions in the rest of the world, it's still very, very strong. And especially in Africa, in the Middle East, in Muslim countries, religious traditions are still very dear to people. And so it is here in Africa too. So that when you are reading a phenomenon or a movement, a group, you are studying a group like Boko Haram, you've got to listen to what the people who are leading and the founders and the preachers and the scholars are saying about who they are. They are self-defining their cause, and yet Western scholars and journalists have the tendency to come at this from the anthropological, sociological, economic perspectives, which are all valid. But it's not just about that. If you focus on just the sociological, economic factors, you will miss the deep-rooted motivations and inspirations that drives a poor person to do what they are doing or gives them joy even in the midst of poverty. Religion can do that and is doing that in Africa. And that is why it's important not to miss that religious roots of a group like Boko Haram. I know my dad was always very aware of the fact that after 9-11, there was suddenly this new interest in some of his work from people who maybe hadn't previously been particularly interested in the history of Islam around the world. And I always felt like he was trying to do two things at once. He was trying to say, 
to voices who were saying, here's this religion, Islam, and it's definitionally hostile to the West. He was, you know, he was quick to say, well, you know, not so fast. Let's take a more nuanced view. Let's look at the history and the the different movements within Islam. But he was also, I got the sense, trying to push back against people who said, oh, this religion is Islam. It's just like Christianity. It's easily compatible with the life we're living in the West. He kind of wanted to say, not so fast to those people too. And to at sometimes remind some of his Western audience, especially the secular Western audience, that the Western conception of secularity that many of them take for granted is in part a Christian legacy. And their worldview might be shaped by Christianity in ways that they weren't even aware of. And they might see the world in ways that look a little strange to someone whose worldview is shaped by Islam. And so I think when I was reading his work, certainly, especially after 9-11, it was very much that tension of saying, no, Islam isn't this implacably hostile force to quote-unquote the West, but at the same time, there are real conflicts, and it's not obviously or in a simple way compatible, because it is it has its own tradition that has to be engaged with in that way. Is that You're the expert, John. I don't know if that's a, I hope that's not a misreading of my dad's work. Absolutely not. You're spot on. And that is precisely what your father used to say, your dad used to say, because his driving motivation and uh, for his work all of his life was, was to educate, was to draw people's attention to the fact that there are some of these deeper issues that we should not oversimplify, but we should not also dismiss. And your dad will always say something to the effect that Religion is too important for the state to ignore, and it is too important for the state to co-opt. In other words, religion is important in its own right and needs to be respected and treated in the same way. In societies that have not had Western societies, secular society, where the drive there is about innovation, it's about new discoveries, it's about the future, the next iPhone, that's the next generation that's coming out. That is what drives Western society. But in many other traditional societies, tradition and the past and history are potent forces that you cannot ignore. And so when we are looking at these two worldviews from within the one or the other, you can easily put on blinkers that you are very much unaware of. And that is what your dad used to remind people. Let's be mindful of our blinkers. Let's be mindful that we are not overreading. We are not reading things into Islam or into religion. That is just coming from our own heritage, our own culture, which is infused with Christian teaching and with Christian culture that we are, even, we are not even aware of. One of the implications for that is that if you talk about interfaith dialogue, is that it might be the case that a confidently and consciously Christian society is better able to engage with Islam than a secular society that thinks of itself as post-Christian. Absolutely. That is, again, the other point. Because in Western scholarship, certain trends of Western scholarship, it was almost projected as if one had to be an agnostic to appreciate interfaith dialogue and interfaith coexistence. But works that people like your father and we are doing in Africa here is to say that 
to engage in meaningful interfaith dialogue, interfaith conversations, one has to take the faith itself seriously. I have worked with Muslims, we work with Muslims, and Muslims across board are much more eager to talk to people of faith from other traditions, whether Christian or Buddhist. They find that it's easier to talk to Christians, for instance, than it is to talk to a secular-minded person from the West, because you don't even just have the language, the common language to start with. So yes, it is very important. And that is why here in our the Sunday Institute, we talk about our roots are deep in our traditions, just as our love of neighbor is. In order to, to reach out, to branch out to others, we've got to have our roots deeply entrenched in our own religious traditions. Dr. Azuma, in philanthropy, we had the question frequently raised, what does winning look like? And I'd be curious to understand a little bit better how you see progress in helping Christianity, where you are to not simply be, as you said, a mile wide and one inch deep as part of that narrative, part of that story, but also understanding better the religious roots of Islam for those of us who are Christian and vice versa, sort of getting into the, the thickness of that pluralism as opposed to um, making errors linked to being part of a secular tribe. Yeah, thank you. Again, understanding both Islam and Christianity is crucial. For instance, these are missionary religions, both Islam and Christianity, which means that both are into some kind of a mission work to convert and to make people switch to their side. And that is going on. A lot of that is happening in Africa. Muslims are preaching, Christians are preaching, and they are, we have been fishing from the pond of traditional African religion for centuries, and that pond is drying up. And so you now have Muslims and Christians fishing from each other's pond, and you have religious switching going on in Africa, Christians becoming Muslims, and Muslims becoming Christian. That tendency to fall into that trap of numbers games, of competition, of wanting to have our, 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 our a bigger community than the other. But for me, winning in Africa is to up, come to a point where both sides appreciate the fact that God has placed us in this continent, in these communities, in these families together. I would wish that all my Muslim relatives would become Christian as they wish that I will become Muslim. But in the meantime, all whilst, while we are praying for that and whatever we are seeking to do to achieve that, we have to come to terms with the fact that we are here and now together. We have this country together called Ghana that we need to work as Muslims and Christians, live in this shared space and make Ghana develop, make Ghana peaceful, make Ghana stable, for instance. And it is about working for the higher common good beyond just our religious divisions, beyond just our religious creeds, but to work towards the creed of humanity where we are all one, one species, as religious people would say, created in the image of God that we share that common denominator. For me, that would be winning that the here, let's leave the hereafter 
to God who is capable to handle that. And let's work together about the here, life before death. Let's work on that together. And for me, when Muslims and Christians come to that realization, that will be the win for me in Africa here. I mean, I think one of the things that was always so inspiring to my dad throughout his career about Christianity was precisely its identity as a world religion and the fact that, to a large extent, the energy and in some cases, a lot of cases, the people were moving toward the global south. In other words, that Christianity as practiced in Europe, as practiced in North America, was not necessarily definitive of what Christianity was. He, he, he converted to Catholicism a uh, little over 20 years ago. And I think, again, part of what he liked about Catholicism was here is this global church where the energy and the people, where that's really increasing outside of the European countries that were the traditional home of it. I think depending on how you look at the statistics, if I have this right, I think there's more Christians in Africa now than in Latin America or in Europe or in Asia. And so there is one way of telling that story, which is that, you know, if people are looking, you know, you talked about that dialogue between Christianity and Islam, right? And, and there is one idea, which is that other parts of the world might look to a place like Ghana in order to see how this might be worked out and in order to see what that kind of engagement really looks like. There's another way of looking at it, which is that you see secularism in the U.S., you see the rise of the religiously affiliated, you see a, a country where, for the first time maybe in its history, the majority of people in the U.S. don't attend religious services regularly. And, you know, you can look at that and say, like, maybe that's a wave, and maybe that wave hit Europe first, and it's hitting the U.S. now, and maybe it's coming for other countries, too. And, and I... While I have you here just personally or selfishly, I had to ask, John, how you see that. Do you see that wave, that secularism wave that's hitting the U.S.? Do you see that in the future for a country like Ghana? Well, <laughs> I have to be a prophet to predict that. And thankfully, I'm not a prophet. But uh, the truth of the matter is that the cultural waves that are taking place in the West is so powerful. Globalization is real. It's powerful. And many Africans today, as you rightly said, are deeply religious. And when you talk about Christianity, for instance, in Europe, in 1910, Europe made up of about 66% of the world Christian population, 66. And today, Europe is barely 20% of the world Christian population. And Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, was less than 2% of the Christian population in 1910. Today, Sub-Saharan Africa, we have about 28, 29% of the world Christian population. So you see a tremendous amount of growth in Sub-Saharan Africa in the last century as and a tremendous amount of, of decline in Western Europe and the Christian front. And that is the state of affairs today. But I can tell you also that the sort of factors and currents that contributed to the decline of Christianity in the West uh, can easily take place in Africa here in the coming decades. And that is something that people are, uh, I try to remind African scholars and African theologians that let's be careful when we're talking about the decline in Europe of Christianity because 
the same trends and factors that existed that precipitated those uh, that kind of decline are real here, and we need to be mindful of that. So yes, it can happen, and Christians and Muslims are very much in denial in Africa today that it will never happen here. But I am not as optimistic as many of them are. One of the further wrinkles of this, of course, is that, as far as I can tell, some of the fastest growing churches in Africa are the kinds of Pentecostal or charismatic congregations where someone like my dad probably would not have felt entirely at home. Yes. And that is part of the challenge that we have in Africa here, that a lot of the Pentecostal charismatic Christianity is not an issue in itself, but it's the kind of teaching, the message, the what is called prosperity gospel that is driving these numbers here. Yeah. And that is what I meant when I said, I talked about this one mile wide and one inch deep, because the prosperity gospel is so deeply entrenched in many of these charismatic Pentecostal and even finding its way to mainstream Presbyterian, Methodist, even the Roman Catholic churches now. And so, yes, these are the challenges. And this prosperity gospel has that kind of it's a false gospel, to be honest and blunt. And therefore, we need to begin to address these false teachings before people begin to walk away from the church. And it's already begun. We know a lot of people in Ghana here, for instance, who have ceased going to church, not because they have ceased being Christian, but they are just giving up on the church because of all the issues that they see with the church. The church being corrupt, the church being judgmental, the church being condemnatory, and that's all they see from the church. The church not exhibiting, not embodying that kind of compassionate a witness that the gospel is all about. I want to be clear that I'm certainly no religious scholar, right? I mean, you, John, and my dad both forgot more about Christianity than I could ever hope to learn, right? I'm a journalist covering music and contemporary culture. But one advantage I do have, not an advantage, but one item on my resume that I have that you may not is I've actually flown on a private jet with Creflo Dollar <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and and spent a little bit of time in that world. I've met Pastor Paula White, who was said to be Donald Trump's mm-hmm. pastor. I met her in, uh, I believe it was in Kid Rock's hotel room once. So I, I've written a little bit about that world and, and spent a little time in it. And I mean, it's fascinating to me, you you mentioned kind of in passing that the prosperity gospel was a false gospel. And that's an example of the kind of judgment that's really hard to make from a secular perspective. In other words, in order to say it's a false gospel, you kind of have to have some idea of what the true gospel (laughs) is. And that's one of the interesting complications when you look at, from a secular perspective, you look at these churches you see them growing, you see that it seems to be working, you see especially in America, you see certainly, obviously, mainline Protestant churches have kind of been hollowed out, you see the energy of the evangelical movement seems to have maybe kind of stalled a little bit, and this looks like, from a secular perspective, you would look at the numbers of the Pentecostals and the Charismatics and and even some of the so-called prosperity preachers, and you'd say, that looks like where the energy is. That looks like the thing that maybe is going to be the future. 
Yes, and that is what is so deeply concerning that, as I said, you, you've got to be on the ground and you, you look at a lot of the statistics and the data on the ground and you realize that the prosperity gospel is what precisely many observers have described African Christians as one mile wide and one inch deep. So the growth is there. The numbers are there, but what is the debt? What is the substance? How meaningful is it when people are facing real time life, a personal or family crisis? And that is when people begin to see that this whole thing was actually a joke. It was a setup and it doesn't give them practical tools to engage with real life challenging situations. And you have to build this cocoon, this bubble, that people can be there and feel good at that moment in time. But you can't live in that bubble for the rest for all of your life. And so that is where the challenge is with this kind of prosperity gospel that we're talking about in Africa here. And as I said, it is a distortion of the gospel. I'm sure everyone listening to this conversation probably has some familiarity with what prosperity gospel is and the idea that you you tithe and you you sow your money into the church and you will reap your rewards, often earthly rewards in terms of money. You know, give me this and your car is going to get paid off and you're going to have all the riches you want, which obviously there's an implication there that if something's going wrong in your life, it's because of something wrong that you did, right? The church is a sort of a great amplification machine where whatever you put in, you kind of get back out. And I have to wonder, is there a Muslim equivalent of this? Or is there something in the history and nature of of Christianity that makes it so that this entrepreneurial tradition flourishes in Christianity in a way that it doesn't in Islam? Yes. Yes and no. Because in Christianity, Christianity had this teaching of asceticism from its beginnings and this teaching of demonizing mammon or the world or material things and preaching the pie in the sky and if you like a life is going to be better after death and so not much attention was paid to life before death and that is a challenge that in africa people who are living in poverty already they don't want this kind of life they want life to be better here and now and that is where prosperity gospel taps into Islam, on the other hand, hasn't had that to that extent that Christianity has. Islam has had always a very pragmatic engagement with the here and now. Islam, many theologians will tell you, is a religion about the here and now. And therefore, Islam doesn't have that kind of challenge. And you don't find the equivalence of prosperity gospel in Islam, even though you will find Pentecostal charismatic Islam where people believe in miracles, they believe in healing. You find all that in Islam, but not to the extent that for what we describe as the prosperity gospel in Christianity. You described so eloquently earlier, you know, whether it's Boko Haram or the Lord's Resistance Army, how how it's so easy for us from the West in journalism to reduce to the economic or the political or the other terrorist dynamics, but not look at the religious roots at all. And it occurs to me that, you know, as you're playing prophet in response to Caliphate's question about the future of Islam in Africa, the future of Christianity in Ghana, that there is an element too, right, where tech and the fact that we were able to skip 
you know, landlines altogether in many places and just go straight to cell phones. It sort of leapfrogs over. And that tech does allure a little bit the possibilities of, of sort of insta prosperity gospel breakthrough and, and opportunity. I guess I just wanted to ask you, John, to talk a little bit about what the Santa Institute is doing and, and why that's important and how that's connected to the scholarship of my dad and the work that he did. Yeah, thank you. The Sane Institute is, as you rightly said from the beginning, Kay, is we launched it in 2020, just before the pandemic took over the world. Your dad was very much a part of the planning. We planned this together after we initially shocked him that there was this plan to name this <laughs> institute after him. He was right. very, very... I remember when he told me about it. Yeah. <laughs> and after he overcame the shock and he accepted the fact, we started working together on this. And the Sunny Institute here, the vision that we have is to pursue scholarship as a tribute to God with the religious and non-religious other within hearing distance. Now, <clears throat> these were words that your dad literally uttered to me in one of the last but one of his emails that he sent to me. And when he passed away so suddenly, and I recovered from my own shock of, the, of his sudden passing, I was grappling with how, how can we set this up to honor Lamy? And so I recall those words, and that is what is our motivation and our inspiration. Your dad was a very, very serious, meticulous, engaging scholar. And one of the things he wanted to do was to really see that his work, his scholarship, is a tribute to God. He wanted to become a clergy person, he said, all his life. He wanted to be a priest. And when he, in his own words, when he was thwarted in that desire of his, he turned his energies to scholarship and he wanted to turn it into a tribute, to see that as a tribute to God. But not just as a tribute to God from the ivory towers, but mindful of the fact that the religious and the non-religious order are within hearing distance. And so that we are pursuing scholarship, not just in our own clusters, in our own silos, but very carefully engaged, even it is implicitly with the religious and non-religious order. And that is what we seek to achieve in Ghana here and to inculcate that, to raise a new generation of Muslim and Christian scholars who will take scholarship seriously because when we're talking about religious illiteracy or inter-religious illiteracy, it's because people have taken religion and not engaged with scholarship. We've divorced it from scholarship. And we need to get people to engage with scholarship and religion. And that is what we want to do to raise that new generation of scholars who will see this as a, a devotion to God, but also a service to society. And that is what we are seeking to pursue in Africa, to train younger scholars who are theologically humble and intellectually curious of the other. I've got to say, when I think about the extraordinary patience that is required to lead a congregation, to lead a church, I think maybe it's better that my father became a scholar and not a pastor. <laughs> but, I, you know, I think also the fact of this institute, right, it's named for my father, who was born Muslim and converts to Christianity, 
you're in charge, you're someone who was born Muslim and converts to Christianity. And I think there's a part of it where it's important for the Institute to be in dialogue with Muslim communities and Muslim leaders. And it's important for the Institute to not seem as if it has some hidden agenda, right? That this is a Christian organization that's here to try and undermine other religions. And I think part of that is that because you and my father both have this tradition of respectful engagement with Islam and Muslim theology and Muslim scholars, what I saw at the opening weekend that we that I attended two years ago in Accra and what I've seen since then is that Muslim scholars and leaders hopefully feel comfortable being in dialogue with this institute because they think of it as a place that is respectful of their traditions and where they can have these conversations as opposed to a purely Christian institute that's not interested in hearing from the non-Christian world. Absolutely. That is at the core of our mission here. And yes, in fact, beyond what you saw at the inauguration, we had the, the emir of Kano visit the Sunni Institute just two weeks ago, and he came with a whole entourage. We enjoy a lot of goodwill and support from the Muslim leadership in Ghana and across West Africa, precisely because we want to encourage that kind of respect, as scholarly pursuits, but with respect and honor. I teach Islam online here, and my students are mostly Muslim, and they are calling other Muslims to join the class because they say, he is a Christian, but he is so respectful, objective of our faith that we will never even hear this from a Muslim scholar. So for me, it's humbling to be able to engage with Muslims in that way. And I think it's a duty for scholarship and for Christians to be able to do that. It is interesting, isn't it, that the role of the scholar and the depth of work involved, like you, Dr. Zuma, in getting a PhD at University of Birmingham and a master's in the UK, your father, Khalifa, you know, teaching at Yale, teaching at Harvard, all those many years, there is a different temperament and a lot of work, obviously, too. And I'm, it's a little bit of a forced question, but I've so enjoyed listening to some of Khalifa's book of a couple of years ago, Major Labels. Is there something about scholarship and music that can go hand in hand constructively? You know, if you're a journalist, you got to have an outlet. And it can be, right? It can be running, it can be bourbon, it can be what coffee. But is there something about music that settles you somehow in your depth and as a, acts as a sort of pairing or counterpart constructively? I mean, it, my approach is, in some ways, it's if there's a similarity to my dad's work, it's trying to approach different cultures without preconceptions or trying to be aware of your own preconceptions. And I think, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't compare the the writing that I've done or even the book that I wrote to the, the many books that my dad wrote. But, you know, when you talk about the sense of peace, a lot of times when I'm interested in music, I'm trying to disturb the peace a little bit. I'm trying to interrupt or to unsettle or to, to find the places where people really disagree about things, right? To find the unexpected kernels of disagreements that people don't even know that they're having and to engage with the cultures and to really see how different these worlds are. I'm not going to pretend that my dad shared my interest in punk rock or in hip hop <laughs> or or in any of those any of those worlds in particular but I I do think that he hopefully saw something of his own curiosity reflected in me and, and that sense of seeing something and Rather than saying like, oh, I bet this world of hip hop is exactly like the world I know, 
rather than doing that, but to be aware of and be prepared for the idea that, no, in some ways, this world is profoundly different. And in some ways, the values that are espoused in hip hop and the worldview, in some ways, it is profoundly different than what you see in country music, for example. There is something that doesn't mean that you can't have collaborations in my world, right? You can't have collaborations and crossovers and you can't have Morgan Wallen doing a song by Lil Durk, as happened a couple of weeks ago which was a big deal in my world. Yes, of course, you can have those kinds of collaborations, but you'll also have profound disagreement. And again, I think, you know, my interest certainly in people disagreeing about things certainly seems like something that I inherited in some part from my dad. Well, with that, an exhortation to listen to a good, thick, encouraging, but uncomfortable song. Keep it up, <laughs> Dr. Azuma. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you. Thank you. Faith Angle connects leading journalists, scholars, and clerics for in-depth conversations that matter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.